To my knowledge, he didn't have his gun out or anything. I mean, this guy was committing a, a misdemeanor. He was selling moonshine. Uh, my understanding was uh, when he walked into the, the little shanty, the guy was had his back to him and was pouring uh, out a drink, and that was the illegal part. And I told him to raise his hands, and instead the guy had a whiskey bottle in his hand. He wheeled around and hit the sheriff in the head. That was current Flagler County Sheriff Rick Staley describing what happened 91 years ago today to the county's second-ever sheriff, Perry Hall, who walked into a shack full of people and attempted to arrest someone for illegally distributing alcohol. That cost him his life. And it started a three-week campaign of bloodshed that spanned more than 200 miles. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll take you way back in the past, to the year 1927, when Flagler County itself was only 10 years old. It was on this day 91 years ago that 41-year-old Perry Hall, Flagler's sheriff, was killed in Roy, a black settlement in the northwest section of the county. The man who killed Hall would go on the run before being chased down and gunned down by an angry mob in Brookfield, Georgia. Two more men would become casualties in the aftermath of Hull's murder. Violence against lawmen and mob violence against society's perceived criminal element were all commonplace in Florida during that period of history. Joining me for that segment will be Flagler Sheriff Rick Staley, as well as James Denham, a professor of history at Florida Southern College. But first, I'll discuss a manslaughter charge filed against a Pinellas County man in connection with a fatal shooting outside a gas station in Clearwater. Last Monday, the state attorney's office decided to prosecute the accused shooter after the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office decided not to arrest him based on the state's stand-your-ground law. The case has generated national attention. More on that story is coming up next. 911, what's the address of the emergency? Hello? Hello? I need help now. Okay. Where are you? Where are you? I just got a store. I just need help. Okay. That was Brittany Jacobs, the girlfriend of Marquise McLaughlin, who was shot and killed July 19th at a convenience store outside Clearwater. The suspect, 48-year-old Michael Draca, wouldn't be charged for another three weeks. Draca, who lives in Clearwater, confronted Jacobs while she was seated in a car that was parked in a handicapped spot outside the Circle A food store on Sunset Point Road. A video that captured the incident showed Draca walking around the vehicle looking for a decal or placard on the car. There was none. Jacob's boyfriend was inside the store, 
Draca could be seen on the video talking to Jacobs and looking agitated. The couple's children also were in the car, according to the Tampa Bay Times. Seconds later, the 28-year-old McLaughlin walked outside. He saw the stranger dressing down his girlfriend, then walked up to him and shoved him. Draca fell onto the asphalt. While he was still on the ground, he pulled a handgun and aimed it at McLaughlin. Pinellas Sheriff's deputies identified the weapon as a 40 caliber Glock. The video shows McLaughlin taking at least three steps back before the gunman opens fire. Deputies said McLaughlin was unarmed. After he was shot, McLaughlin grabbed his chest and stumbled back into the store. His five-year-old son was inside and watched his father collapse. Jacobs got out of the car and followed her boyfriend into the store. The video showed Draca keeping his gun pointed at McLaughlin until after the injured man entered the store. Draca remained on the ground for a while, but eventually stood up. He remained on the premises while witnesses called 911. 911, what is the address of the emergency? Uh, I'm at the Circle Food Store on Sunset Point, on the corner of Douglas and Sunset. Okay, and what city is that in? Uh, I'm going to say uh, Clearwater. Someone just got shot, so you need to speed this up a little bit. Okay. And that happened right in front of the store? Right in front of the store, yeah. I just watched it. Where's the person with the gun? Okay, it looks like we may be getting multiple calls on this. Yeah, the, I told the store owner I kind of was seeing it happen before it happened, and then I told the store owner, came outside, and then I watched it happen. So, you know, I'm just calling you right now. Okay, yeah, we did. Sure you got shot point blank. Okay. The day after the shooting, Pinellas County Sheriff Bob Gualtieri told the media that Draca was within his right to defend himself. You know, and we have to recognize that if Marquise McLaughlin hadn't walked up to him the way he did and slammed him on the ground, we wouldn't be here having this discussion either. So what's relevant is not whether this guy's a good guy, nice guy, or whether he's a jerk, or whether he's a thorn in people's sides, and what he's done, whether it's three weeks ago, three months ago, or three years ago, what's relevant, and the only thing that we can look at here, is was he in fear of further bodily harm because of what Maurice or Marquise McLaughlin did, and was he in an ability and have the capability to carry it out? And the answer is yes. In that clip, Gualtieri was addressing reports that Draca had a history of harassing customers at that store. The Washington Post reported that Draca threatened to shoot a truck driver three months earlier at the Circle A. The reason? The truck driver was parked in a handicapped space. That truck driver, who was black, told police that Draca, who was white, used racial slurs during the confrontation. That information was reported by the Times. After Draca threatened him, the truck driver said Draca rummaged in his center console for something, maybe a weapon. And that's when the truck driver sped off, according to the Washington Post, which obtained the criminal complaint.
Draca found out where the truck driver worked, presumably because the truck had the name of the company painted on it. The Post reported that Draca called the man's boss and told him he was lucky that he didn't blow his head off. On two occasions in 2012, motorists accused Draca of waving or pointing a handgun at them. In both cases, the motorists decided not to press charges. Draca also wasn't charged in connection with the alleged threats he made to the truck driver, so his record prior to Monday showed no arrests. Gualtieri applied Florida's stand-your-ground law to the July 19th fatal shooting. The law states that people who think someone is trying to kill or seriously harm them may use deadly force. Standard self-defense laws state that people who face imminent danger have an obligation to retreat. Only when that seems impossible is deadly force permitted. Florida's law basically removes the retreat obligation. The law first drew the ire of critics following the Trayvon Martin slang. His shooter, George Zimmerman, did not apply the law in his defense, but jurors at his trial mentioned it during their deliberations before finding him not guilty. Gualtieri's conclusion was a controversial one. Civil rights groups were critical, but so were some conservatives. National Review columnist David French wrote that the shooting should have, quote, sickened America's armed citizens, and also stated that the law was wrongly interpreted by the sheriff, adding that the shooter only had the right to shove back, not shoot the man who shoved him first. But on Monday, Pinellas Pasco State Attorney Bernie McCabe announced that Draca would be charged with manslaughter. He was booked at the Pinellas County Jail, and his bail was set at $100,000. McCabe told the media that the sheriff's office handed over hundreds of documents related to the case, and that prosecutors filed the charge they think they can prove to convict Draca. Coming up, the story of a sheriff who was slain 91 years ago today. Well, of course, in, in Florida, which is to say the the South, um, it certainly would have been a, a, a dicey situation um, for any white man or any black man to kill any white man. And remember, in the 1920s, uh, that was a, uh, a time in Florida and elsewhere, all over the country, really, that the Ku Klux Klan was, was very much uh, on the rise and operational, and there were a lot of tensions tensions going on regarding not only African Americans but also immigrants. Bootlegging and that kind of thing was was also very much a part of the, the time. That was James Mike Denham, a professor of history and director of the Lawton M. Childs Jr. Center for Florida History at Florida Southern College in Lakeland. Denham is the author of six books, including Florida Sheriffs, A History, 1821 to 1945. To understand the circumstances surrounding the death of Perry Hall, one must fully understand the way of the world back in the 1920s, or at least the way it was in Florida, which was rife with unrest on so many different levels. Geographically, 
Florida is the most southern of the continental United States, and in 1927, it was the most southern in terms of culture, too. Whites and blacks were segregated. Yankees were not welcome. Catholics and Jews weren't either. Florida was also a dry county, even before the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified in 1920, which banned the sale and manufacturing of alcoholic beverages. Lawmen like Hall enforced the law, as did the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan that was present during Reconstruction wound up getting meted out by the federal government, but the new Klan formed about 40 years later. Members of the new Klan saw themselves as moralists. White Protestant supremacy wasn't all that the Klan enforced. They were opposed to bootlegging, prostitution, gambling, or anything that was deemed nefarious or illegal. The Klan would get violent, and violence back then was often met with more violence. Here again is Denim discussing the presence of the Klan during the early 1900s in more detail. The new Klan emerged um, in the 19-teens. Of course, the dramatic uh, episode in the 19-teens of the Klan uh, of three individuals um, going atop Stone Mountain, Georgia and lighting the cross on fire and basically proclaiming the the Ku Klux Klan is either reborn or reconstituted or whatever in that dramatic fashion. It came about as a result of the um, extremely significant immigration patterns that had occurred. In other words, uh, by the turn of the century, we had obviously the open door and we had dramatic immigration of the country coming in, people coming in from not only Ireland, which was Roman Catholic, but many new immigrants from Italy and um, places that were um, far different than Anglo-America Jews, lots of Jews coming in from Central Europe and in Russia and Poland. Um, and this reflected a, a tremendous concern about uh, Catholicism uh, and and coming in and affecting the, uh, the the culture of America. And there were all kinds of scare tactics regarding Catholics and Jews and so forth. Based on my research, Perry Hall had no direct involvement with the Klan. But lawmen back then often worked hand-in-hand hand with Klansmen or would sometimes turn a blind eye to some of their antics. Klansmen would resort to whipping, tarring, and feathering, and even lynching to make examples out of people they felt were harmful to society. A silent film titled Birth of a Nation was released in 1915. It was a silent film that depicted the Klan as heroes, and it was credited as helping revive the Klan, which had a presence across the country, not just in the South. But in Florida, the Klan was a significant force. In 1926, 11 years after Birth of a Nation was released, Florida Governor James W. Martin learned there had been 63 floggings in Putnam County, which sits to the west of Flagler. The governor called in the county's sheriff and the mayor of the county's seat, Palatka, and threatened to remove them from office if they didn't do something to quell the attacks. The Klan was all over the Northeast Florida region. In 1922, Roughly 300 white-robed KKK members marched through the streets 
of downtown Bunnell, Flagler's county seat. They all held signs that warned that loose women, gamblers, crooks, and bootleggers weren't welcome there. The Klan blamed societal decay on the black residents who lived along the south side of town. Klansmen, however, weren't all that principled. They were downright hypocritical. The Klan openly opposed um, uh, opposed drinking and were were dry, uh, but oftentimes their their festivities were were enlivened with whiskey and so forth. I've I've heard accounts of even though we're beating up a, a bootlegger, for example, or we're burning down the uh, the house of a of a of a moonshiner, um, we're also toasting that process by by swigging a couple of um, a couple of hits of white lightning. So so anyway, there are all kinds of ironies in this. When I first interviewed Denham two years ago for a project I was working on about the history of the Flagler County Sheriff's Office, he told me that the early 1900s and the Prohibition era were periods in which black people could just be shot with very few ramifications. But Klan violence was sometimes challenged, and bootleggers who feared law enforcement intrusion also were willing to make a stand, and in some cases, initiate the violence. On August 30, 1921, nine men in two cars kidnapped a St. John's County deputy sheriff. They grabbed him slipped a hood over his head, shoved him into one of the cars, took him to a wooded area near Hastings, tied him to a tree, thrashed him with a rawhide strap, and ordered him to leave the county that night. The attackers were believed to have been moonshiners who were getting fed up with the deputy disrupting their operations. Such violence was the norm back then. Here again is Denim. Florida was an interesting, interesting place for this a lot of this this activity to kind of play out um, because you had a real conflict going on between um, southern southerners uh, who had been here several generations, or even southerners who had come from the other parts of the South uh, to Florida recently, and then a lot of uh, and a lot of northern uh, northern immigrants. So it was a It was a uh, volatile time. Flagler County Sheriff Rick Staley was elected in 2016. Last year, the county celebrated its 100th birthday. He has spent time researching the history of Flagler County, and he discovered during that research just how dangerous of a place Flagler was, particularly when it was still establishing itself as a new county. This was truly uh, the Wild West of the South. Very little population, dirt roads. Uh, the sheriff rode uh, horses, or you know, if they were lucky, they had had a car. The first sheriff in Flagler County in 1917, when the county was uh, founded, he used a horse and a buggy, and no radio communications like you have today. No computers. They generally carried a revolver, so it was you know pretty pretty wild and uh, even though there were, the population was not that much um, you still had crime occur you might not hear about it right away because of the, the lack of communication but uh, from my from my research and reading 
different sheriffs that uh, have been killed in a line of duty in Florida during this era, the life expectancy for a sheriff was not very long. During that Wild West era of Florida, Perry Hall bravely carried out his job. He didn't mess around when it came to enforcing the laws, prohibiting the sale and distribution of alcohol. During his two years as sheriff, he actively worked to enforce prohibition laws, capturing four men in 50 cases of whiskey in January 1927, along with three cars that he seized uh, used by uh, moonshine runners. And he traveled uh, across Florida and even going into Georgia to retrieve prisoners to stand trial. Hall had a lot to contend with. Flagler was rife with moonshine activity. You know, Flagler County uh, for Prohibition was was a pipeline to Chicago. There were many stills in Flagler County because it was a rural county. Uh, there weren't very many deputy sheriffs. And uh, there was a good road from Flagler County and in center part of Florida to Chicago. So it was not uncommon for moonshine running in, in Flagler County and for schooners to uh, anchor off the coast of Flagler Beach and bring uh, illegal rum uh, onto uh, or into Flagler County. Hall purchased a pair of bloodhounds, which were used in the summer of 1927 in an attempt to track down the criminals who robbed the local post office. Then on the night of August 21, 1927, the 41-year-old Hall came upon Roy, a community in the northwestern part of the county, where lots of turpentine workers lived. Flagler County in that area was a really almost like one huge gigantic turpentine camp back in the, back in the twenties. I mean, it was a, it was the probably the chief um, economic endeavor, and there are lots of workers who had to be housed. Roy was a black settlement. It was located close to the St. Johns County line. Hall had no deputy helping him. He may have only had three or so working for him. When he walked into that shack, he did it alone. And that shack was called the Blind Tiger by locals. After he walked inside, he spotted a man in the back by the name of James Smith. Hall ordered Smith, who was pouring liquor, to raise his hands. Smith raised one hand, but not the other. Hall got closer. Smith made sure he had a tight grip on the bottle he was holding in his other hand. Then he turned around, striking the bottle against Hall's head. Hall hit the floor and lost consciousness. He never woke up. His skull was fractured. Hall's chief deputy, Billy Williams, who was about a quarter mile away, was summoned to the shack. When he entered, he came upon Hall. By then... Smith was long gone. Williams, who was Hall's brother-in-law, took the critically wounded sheriff to a St. Augustine hospital, where Hall was pronounced dead the next day. Hall was survived by his wife and three kids. My first thought is, is this thing that, that um, Sheriff Hall was doing was just basically so perfunctory. He probably did this every day. Um, and that is this kind of event, this kind of going into a, 
a place to, to, to get bootlegger whiskey out was probably something he was so used to that he'd almost gotten, he'd almost gotten, well, I don't want to say he was, he was really not on guard, but, but I would imagine in, in, in Flagler County in the 1920s, this would have been just a, a normal kind of day. <laughs> um, and I would imagine that any number of times he'd already been in these kind of circumstances from, from time to time. It may have happened every day, but the danger from day to day was always palpable. And the other, the other observation I would, I would make, and, and that is, I can't imagine a more dangerous job in the world than to be a sheriff in Flagler County in the 1920s when you consider the turpentine world, when you consider the bootlegger world, when you consider uh, the shipments of, of, of whiskey that would have been going through the county from north to south. I'm not sure whether US-1 was operational yet or what roads went north and south, but I would imagine that Flagler County itself, but also um, uh, was, a, was a great producer of moonshine whiskey, but also was a transit, uh, a transit uh, county as well, going from, from north to south. So, and that doesn't even include all the, the clan business that I was talking about before and, and the potential for, for that kind of activity. Smith fled the state and changed his name to George Jones. About 200 men roamed the woods across three counties, searching for Smith, but they couldn't find him. George Sundurance was another one of Hall's deputies. Three days after Hall was killed, Sundurance decided to do some recon on his own. He headed to Duval County, two counties north of Flagler, the stakeout was set. Durant saw someone he thought matched the description of Hall's killer. He yelled at him to raise his hands. The man was actually a night watchman hired to guard the post office. He thought he was being robbed by the man yelling at him. He raised a shotgun and opened fire. Durant's returned fire. Both men were struck. The watchman, who was black, suffered superficial wounds, but Durrance's injuries were fatal. What happened next to that watchman is an indication of just how grave things were for black men accused of violence against anyone who was white, especially a white lawman. Uh, it's my understanding that actually the Flagler County Jail was raided by a posse and they dragged the suspect out that had killed Deputy Durrance and killed him. He was killed while awaiting trial. A revenge-hungry white mob, which Sheriff Staley just referred to as a posse, was sure to form under those circumstances during that time. Denham wrote in his book that a number of black Floridians were lynched by white mobs because they were accused of assaulting or killing sheriffs or other lawmen. Oftentimes, they were taken out of their cells and killed. If a sheriff or deputy was guarding someone at the jail, he would usually get overpowered. Sometimes he would refuse to fight. Sheriffs back then were known to be sympathetic to such a mob. In 1909, Leon County Sheriff William Langston was murdered by a black turpentine worker, McMorris. Leon County is located in the state's panhandle. Its county seat, Tallahassee, also serves as the state capital. 
Langston showed up at a shed to arrest Morris on an out-of-state warrant. But Langston wound up being ambushed by the suspect and was shot and killed. Morris was later found in Georgia. He was ordered by the governor to be jailed in Duval County for safekeeping. He was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death by hanging. His fate was sealed. But five days before his scheduled execution, a posse of Langston's sympathizers showed up at the jail and lynched Morris in the jail yard. There was one famous instance, however, of a sheriff successfully fending off a lynch mob. In 1923, Arthur Johnson killed a white man on the street in Gainesville. Authorities knew retribution was coming, so they moved the prisoner 46 miles east to the Putnam Jail, where Sheriff P.M. Hagen lived and worked. Hagen's home was actually upstairs from the jail. He and his wife and daughter all lived there. One early morning in March of that year, a posse pulled up to the jail and started banging on the door. News reports had the number of men in that posse ranging from 13 to 20. Hagen cracked open the door and a few of the men poked pistols through the opening. Hagen used his own pistol to beat back the men and closed and locked the door. The men opened fire. Bullets flew into the house. Wood splinters and glass shards were flying. Hagen was struck in the right hand. Another bullet nearly struck his wife, who had run downstairs after hearing the commotion. When Hagen's daughter looked out the window, a bullet nearly struck her, too. The men eventually rode off, but Hagen ran outside and fired his shotgun three times toward the fleeing men. Hagen's stand against the mob cost him the next election, but Hagen would win back the Sheriff Star in 1928. History also recognized him as a man who stood up against racially motivated violence. The prisoner, Arthur Johnson, wound up being moved to a more secure jail in Jacksonville. Nine of the men who showed up at Hagen's home were indicted. All of them were found not guilty by an all-white jury. So Sheriff Perry Hall was in office at a time when the job was anything but administrative. The high sheriff, which men in that position were called back then, were expected to pull their own weight as law enforcement officers. In fact, in many cases, they were probably the one with the most experience and doing the lion's share of the patrolling and raiding. Hall was described in the Flagler Tribune as a likable and capable sheriff. He was born in Putnam County in 1885, and he was the successor to E.W. Johnston, the county's first ever sheriff, who was appointed in 1917. After Johnston won the first election in 1920 and served his complete four-year term, he decided to accept the job as the game warden for the Southern District of Florida. Hall ran in 1924 and won with 308 votes to his opponent's 219 votes. After his death, about 500 people attended his funeral. 
an astounding number considering the county's population was not much greater than that. After Hall's death, his brother-in-law and chief deputy, Billy Williams, was appointed by the governor and finished out Hall's term. Hall became the first law enforcement officer in Flagler to die in the line of duty. Three days later, Durrance became the second. The whereabouts of Hall's killer, James Smith, were discovered about three weeks after Hall's murder. Someone staked out Smith's family's living quarters in Tipton County, Georgia. That's where Smith retreated to, and that's where he was spotted, in Brookfield, located about 200 miles northwest of Bunnell. Smith refused to be taken alive. He kept a double-barreled shotgun within reach in case a mob showed up, but not even he could be on high alert all the time. A mob did show up, unexpectedly. Smith didn't have time to fetch his weapon. He tried running away through the rear of the house where he had been hiding. He got about 100 yards from the house before he was shot in the back. Smith was slain 21 days after he killed Hall. The story the next day in the Flagler Tribune included the quote, Justice overtakes the guilty sooner or later. So the Roaring Twenties weren't all that prosperous for everyone. Eventually, however, the violence settled down. In a couple of years, the Great Depression took hold. In another 14 years came the attack on Pearl Harbor. The abject racism that existed in Florida and elsewhere in the country started to fade. Here again is Denim. The Great Depression was a kind of period of time when a lot of those tensions and those conflicts really kind of evaporated. And also World War II. Um, World War II, of course, particularly because the country became incredibly unified and, you know, all of a sudden the immigrants, the different immigrants, you know, are accepted, you know, and Italians and, and Irish and... Poles and Russians and all kinds of other people fight in the same in the same battalions or companies or or, or whatever and and also the the stress of the depression the economic conflicts and so forth really kind of threw everybody in the same boat and made it made it you know people didn't have the energy to to, to have so much hate you know um, and friction. Um, in a way, you think it might be worse, but but. Um, and of course, you know, there's probably instances in which it was worse, perhaps. But overall, I think the, the country just kind of got tired of it. The war brought along an industrial boom that gave the country an economic facelift. Over time, the turpentine industry radically changed. By the middle of the 20th century, the advent of steel ships and the development of synthetic materials, as well as the declaration of turpentine being a carcinogen, led to the decline and eventual demise of the industry in Florida. So, too, went the settlement of Roy. Hardly anything exists there anymore other than thick woods and dirt roads that connect to nothing. Throughout history, Florida has a lot of communities like that, out in the wilderness places that were created 
to collect natural resources, only to disappear once those resources ran out or once new technologies forced businesses to seek them through other means. Here is Sheriff Staley talking more about that. You know, if you look into the history of Flagler County, this was a turpentine area because of all the pine trees, uh, obviously a moonshine, and it was agriculture and cattle. And so that was just one of those settlements that supported uh, one of those farming and ranching communities that over time has just gone away. We have a number of communities uh, like that. Uh, Agriculture changes, turpentine industry changed, so... You know, there's no reason for people to live out in a wilderness-type area with no services. So those communities eventually become a ghost town, and then, uh, you know, they're all wooden structures. They decay and fall down, and it's gone. On May 7th, Sheriff Staley announced that he would rename the Flagler Jail in honor of Perry Hall. It is now called the Sheriff Perry Hall Inmate Detention Facility. Staley said Hall should always be recognized for making the ultimate sacrifice. Naming the jail, he said, was a way of honoring his memory. Hall wouldn't be the only sheriff to die in the line of duty. On March 23, 1965, Homer Brooks, the county's eighth sheriff, died of a heart attack. He was found slumped over and unconscious in his car near the front steps of the Bunnell Courthouse. Two deputies found him and took him to the hospital, but he was already dead by the time he was brought there. Brooks's successor, Zip Edmondson, very nearly became the third sheriff to die in office. He survived a heart aneurysm while fishing with his wife, who was an ER nurse. Edmondson wound up losing close to 100 pounds following his health scare and was out of office for five months in 1978 during his recovery. But he never fully recovered. Diabetes caused a portion of his leg to be amputated, so he had to rely on a prosthetic and a cane to get around. When he ran for sheriff for a fifth time in 1980, Edmondson lost. In fact, every sheriff who has ever run for re-election in Flagler has ended up losing his last election bid. Only three sheriffs left office without being voted out, and two of them died in office. The other was someone who decided only to serve one term. Instead of running for sheriff a second time, he decided to run for county judge. Predictably, he lost that election. Another sheriff... Dan Bennett, the one who defeated Edmondson in an upset, wound up getting removed from office due to scandal. The Florida Senate voted 31 to 0 to remove him. He only got to serve two years. All things considered, it almost seems the office is cursed in some way. Staley doesn't want to believe that. Well, I certainly hope it's not cursed. Uh, You know, we've had one sheriff killed in the line of duty, and we had a second sheriff that that technically died in the line of duty of a heart attack when he was leaving the courthouse and had just gotten in his patrol car. Uh, And and then we had one sheriff removed from office. So so we do have an interesting uh, history here. Uh, I certainly hope it's not cursed. Um, I'm a very active sheriff, as you know. I was in a vehicle pursuit just on, on Saturday with my employees. 
and uh, and and so I, I I hope I my name is not added to our memorial wall. Um, but but you're right. You know, I mean, we've had an interesting uh, history uh, for a hundred years. Staley isn't up for re-election until 2020, so he has some time to decide whether he wants to test the notion that the office is cursed. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I will discuss one of the most notorious serial murder cases of the last 30 years. I'm talking about the Gainesville student murders. At the start of the fall semester in 1990 at the University of Florida in Gainesville, four students were murdered. Additionally, one student from neighboring Santa Fe Community College also was slain. The man responsible for all five murders was Danny Rowling, who was executed by lethal injection in 2006. Among my special guests for that segment will be a former reporter with the Orlando Sentinel who covered that case from the first slang to the sentencing. Join us next week for that story. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Thank you.